Welcome to TrekCast, the official podcast of the Real Estate Council here in Dallas, Texas. I'm Bill San Antonio, Trek's Marketing and Communications Coordinator. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we are kicking off our Technology of Placemaking series of interviews with the panelists from our April 3rd Bank of Texas Speaker Series event. The event was moderated by Ellie Feingold, a venture advisor to Metaprop, and featured Wired Score founder and CEO Ari Barendrecht, Industrious Launch Manager uh, Leah Alexander, Eden founder and CEO Joe Dubay, and Equium CEO Gabrielle McMillan. And what a fascinating conversation they had about the rise of tech in building management from co-working spaces and efficient IT support and internet connectivity to one-stop shop services for tenant and building needs and how data fits into the future of commercial real estate. Our first chat is with Ellie Feingold, who opened our speaker series program with a presentation on the idea of transportation as a service, which is based on his paper, Our Frictionless Future, which we'll link to in the show notes and on recouncil.com. We had a pretty wide-ranging conversation of how transportation as we know it is changing and the impact that that is having and will continue to have on how companies do business. But before we get to Ellie, I'd like to remind you all to subscribe to TrekCast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. And to follow the Real Estate Council on Facebook, we are at the Real Estate Council. And we're on Twitter and Instagram at Trek Dallas. Be sure to join us at Below Mansion on May 14th for our first Market Matters Breakfast of the Year on the future of retail. We've got two panel discussions lined up about repurposing existing retail buildings and how the retail sector will evolve in the years to come. Speakers include Christine Perez of DCEO, Mark Mazenter of Open Realty Advisors, Frank Miolopoulos of Corinth Properties, Amanda Moreno-Lake of Jim Lake Companies, Jennifer Pearson of Strive, Alan Shore of The Retail Connection, and Herb Weitzman from The Weitzman Group. So head on over to recouncil.com and get your tickets now. With that, here's Ellie Feingold right here on TrekCast. So Ellie, thanks so much for joining me this morning. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and the kind of work that you do. Oh, it's great to be here, and thank you so much for having me. Um, also, I'd just like to thank Trek for uh, hosting a great event the other day. Um, and it was an amazing luncheon and great panel, and I was really just privileged to be a part of it, so thank you. Um, so I, my background um, is a little unusual. I got here uh, through a strange route. Um, I uh, um, started out in tech, so I started my first tech company when I was still in college. I sold that. The second tech company I started was actually a real estate tech company um, in 1998. Um, we were uh, growing like a weed, and then the NASDAQ uh, crashed and took us down with it. Um, so we sold the company to Insignia Financial Group, at the time one of the largest uh, publicly traded real estate companies in the world, where I became the chief innovation officer. Um, we sold Insignia in a various parts, but most of it to CBRE. And then I went off with Andrew Farkas, um, the founder, the chairman of Insignia, and now the, the chairman of C3 and many other things. Um, and we helped build something called Island Capital Group, which is now a, a, a real estate investment banking holding company. Um, and I spent most of my time there um, working on, uh, as president of a company called Island Global Yachting, or IGY Marinas, uh, where over the course of about five years, we grew the company from basically me and Andrew to uh, about 1,000 people worldwide, and we built, bought, and operated luxury mega-yacht marinas in the most beautiful places on Earth. So we built the um, 
we built the marinas on the Palm Island in Dubai. Uh, we did a $300 million development project in the St. Thomas. Uh, we bought the marina at Cabo San Lucas. So all over the world, we built places for this, these, these, these giant yachts. Um, after about five years of basically never-ending jet lag, uh, I, <laughs> um, I, uh, I decided I had enough. Um, so I took a break, and after a few years of uh, getting married and enjoying life, I became the head of innovation globally for CBREs. So um, two times in a row, I was, I was the head, head led innovation for a big global publicly traded real estate company. At CBRE, um, which is just a phenomenal platform, you know, it covers almost every line of business in almost every asset class in almost every country in the world. So um, trying to do uh, innovation there was both um, an incredibly exciting environment, an incredibly daunting environment, because uh, it's a big, big world out there. And sure. uh, um, but that's what brought me to Dallas. Um, CBRE has got a lot of its executive leadership team here, and so I came came down to Dallas. And um, after about six years of that, and taking a little time off again, there's a theme here. Um, I'm now uh, a venture advisor to Metaprop, a New York-based venture capital firm focused on prop tech. Uh, I work with. Uh, seven or eight startups as a formal advisor on the board of advisors to them. Um, and I work with a bunch of other startups as an informal advisor. I'm just really um, fascinated with helping build the real estate tech ecosystem. Uh, it's something that I've been doing for, for two decades now, and so I'm very invested in making sure that we have a really good prop tech community. Um, and then in addition to writing and speaking, uh, and doing podcasts. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm also in the process of uh, starting my own company that I haven't quite taken the wraps off of yet, but it's going to be about investing in real estate with a tech-driven thesis. Okay. So I'm trying to eat my own dog food now, um, <laughs> and that's not just about um, making the tools in the, of the future, but it's actually figuring out how to use them to be a smarter real estate investor for the, for the future that's coming. Well, we, we have partially the genesis of that through your presentation the other day in your paper, uh, The Frictionless Future, which revolves around the idea of transportation as a service. Now, when I hear the term transportation as a service, I think of something like Lyft or Uber. So I'd use an app and I'd request a ride, and then a few minutes later I would get that ride. Um, what do you mean by, by transportation as a service? Is, is that description or, or that comparison to Lyft or Uber uh, accurate? Well, 100%. I mean, Lyft and Uber is definitely transportation as a service, but I think that we should sort of back up and talk about transportation as a service writ large. Okay. So um, when, people, when they say transportation as a service, everybody automatically thinks of the latest service offerings, but the fact is, is people have been um, moving goods back and forth by ship um, that they don't own uh, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. There's been uh, transportation as a service via wagons, via trains, via ocean-going liners. Um, airlines are transportation as a service. Uh, UPS and FedEx, transportation as a service. Hertz, Avis, transportation as a service. What these all have in common is that the capital commitment is carried by not the is not carried by the user. So the user. Um, whether that's renting an airplane seat to get from one place to another, or renting a car when you get there, or moving your package, um, you just pay sort of by the drink, and the capital costs are borne by the companies. And this has been a very efficient way of moving goods um, traditionally, as long as two conditions were present. Um, as long as it was either moving stuff a long way, or moving a lot of stuff. Um, those are usually the two things that kind of made transportation as a service a thing. Um, until recently. And what's happened recently is that a whole stack of what I'm going to call the frictional costs of, of making these arrangements 
um, have really gone down. So it used to be, um, well, right now, if you go to the airport, you're willing to go and spend a bunch of money. You're willing to have a ticket that you've got a specific time, go through security, do all of that, because you just wind up you know, experiencing the miracle of flight, right? But when you're trying to get a mile away, you would certainly not be willing to spend all of that time, money, effort, and hassle. Um, and until recently, you had, it, was pretty, it, was a, it was a big hassle. I remember when I first moved to Dallas, um, you'd call a cab, and you never knew when in the next 45 minutes it was going to show up, or <laughs> frankly, if it was going to show up. And even after you called the fourth time, this happened several times to me, obviously. Um, but now, um, and you had to have cash, and you had to have directions, and nobody, so all of, all of this stuff. But now you have this stack of services and technologies that enable us to do things like geolocation, immediate transactions, trust and verification, which is very important when you're getting in a car with somebody, et cetera. Um, so all of these things have reduced the frictional cost of arranging for transportation and allowed for a much more dynamic network of transportation as a service. And as a result, we're seeing all sorts of categories of transportation as a service emerging. So you can talk about the Ubers and the Lyfts. Um, right here in Dallas, we've seen the explosion of the birds and the limes and the jumps, the bikes and the scooters. We sure have. Those are transportation <laughs> as a service. Um, uh, and then um, some less obvious ones. So if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, an Amazon Prime subscription, in addition to the movies and the music and all that stuff, um, the main thing that you're getting is essentially an unlimited transportation as a service subscription, which means that you can get any package virtually any package that you might are likely to buy um, shipped to you for free. That's transportation as a service in an unlimited, in an unlimited subscription plan. So um, while transportation as a service has been around for a long time for long distances and lots of stuff, we're entering a new era where um, the frictional costs have gone down and has, has enabled all sorts of new models for um, sharing capital assets. How does all of this bring us to, you know, to driverless cars? So it's funny, as I, uh, as I said at the luncheon the other day, you know, the famous quote attributed to Henry Ford, and not to be nerdy, but it's not actually Henry Ford who said that, was that if he'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, that um, sort of box, the horse thinking, is still in our language today when we talk about cars and talk about horsepower. So we have this very, very, very um, ingrained paradigm of what it means when you say autonomous transportation. Um, you said driverless cars, but driverless cars is really just one use case. Um, I, would, I think that it's helpful in order to sort of unlock your brain to th try to think outside of the world that we know a little bit, to think of them as autonomous robots. And those robots can carry stuff, they can carry people, they can carry services, they can carry real estate around. Right? So um, they can come in many, many form factors and one of the reasons that the sharing economy is so important to this is because um, these cars are going to be expensive. Oh, sorry, these vehicles are going to be expensive. See, even I'm, even I'm susceptible to it, and I've been thinking about this for years. But these vehicles are going to be expensive. And the fact of the matter is, is our current ownership model around transportation is broken. Right? The average cost of ownership, total cost of ownership of a car in America is almost $1,000 per month. That's when you include... Um, insurance, fuel, repairs, licensing costs, up, 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 as well as obviously the cost of the car itself and repairs. Um, so that means that the average person is spending a significant portion of their earnings is going to a car, a capital asset that is utilized 
at most three to five percent of its time. And that's of the car's time. If you look at it on a per seat base, it's less than one percent. So we have this extraordinarily inefficient um, model of deploying capital around transportation. And now that you have autonomous vehicles where there's no, um, where you can change the form factors um, into you know, a tiny little thing that brings you a pizza or a big giant thing, it's a bus that carries a lot of people. Um, we're gonna start going to more efficient capital models. So just like we did with airplanes, because it was clear with airplanes that it was gonna be too expensive for everybody to have one, so we started developing shareable ones. With cars, it was just happened to be, we hit this sweet spot where they were just expensive enough to cost a lot of money and take an enormous amount of our, of our earnings, um, but still cheap enough that we could afford them. Um, but I, we're, I think we're about to have a big step change there. So when you hear technologists or you read in the paper that level five autonomous vehicles, which is sort of the holy grail, perfect car that can drive people anywhere, that they're 10 years away, that may, that's probably true. It's totally irrelevant. Um, for most use cases, um, the technology to deliver autonomy, to autonomous transportation is already here. Now, there may be some trade-offs. So the truck that takes, um, uh, that, that, sh that moves a container from one city to another is not going to be necessarily the same vehicle that moves some of the things inside that container within the city. So you have to think of it as a multimodal transportation network, different modes of transportation, each of which um, is suited and has the autonomous system suited for their environment, um, but that are linked together to create essentially a human and good moving, goods moving logistics chain. How, how do we get to this point? I mean, you, you, may, you remark in your article that this is a pretty, pretty significant revolution. Uh, how did we get here? Well, I think that there's, there's a whole bunch of things, but essentially it comes down to technology. Um, and I tend to group them from my own head um, just because it's, it's hard to, to um, otherwise track all of the changes um, into sort of three different buckets, um, two of which have arrived in scale, um, one of which is just about to arrive at scale. Um, so the first one, and I call it radical mobility, it's the thing that we all live with every day now and don't even think about, which is that all of the things that we used to do um, and we used to have to have stuff for um, have now all been condensed into this sort of, into the cloud, right? All these things have been digitized. So you're used to have to have furniture to hold your CDs and then furniture to hold your CD player and speakers and all of this stuff um, just to listen to a very limited selection. Now you need to have absolutely none of that, just your phone, um, and you can listen to anything. This is a miracle. We live in an age of miracles. Um, and this has happened all over the place so that um, we are now able to access almost any piece of information, which means movies, music, books, data, you name it, um, uh, from almost any place on the world at almost any time with almost zero incremental cost. And what that has done is it has not only given us this extraordinary um, access to knowledge in real time and ability to transmit it, um, but it's also uncluttered our lives. And I'm not talking sort of Marie Kondo style. I'm talking about the fact that uh, we don't move around with as many things anymore. Um, for those of us who are, are old enough to remember, you used to go to work with your briefcase, and your briefcase had your papers in it, and maybe it had a laptop in it, which was a giant heavy thing. Um, and if you didn't have your briefcase or your bag or whatever it was, uh, you know, you were pretty much dead in the water. But right now, most people walk out of their doors to work with just their laptop in their hand um, or with just their phone in their hand. Um, and you can be functionally working almost anywhere, anytime. Um, and you can be, so, so, so all, this has really led 
us to be more flexible as people because we can switch between work and play um, and uh, personal life uh, on a, you know, just on a minute-by-minute -minute basis, and we can move around our cities without having to carry as much stuff with us, which I think is a really key factor in some of what we're seeing today. Um, it would be really hard to ride one of those scooters with a giant 30-pound briefcase. You'd just fall over. So <laughs> the scooters, we don't think about it this way, but the only reason the scooters work, or one of the reasons the scooters work, is because you don't have the briefcase. Yeah. And so that's a really interesting change, um, and it's happened so quickly People forget how quickly it's happened because it's happened to us so deeply. Um, it used to be 10 years ago, people would say, oh, you know, those millennials with their phones. And now you, that's just not a thing. <laughs> it's everybody. Right. Now it's millennials uh, and everything else that they're, you know, kind of destroying from our economic ecosystem. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, you can say destroying. I would say creating. Um, I, was, I was going to say killing, but I, you know, <laughs> so, those, I mean, I, those tend to be the headlines you see, right? Yeah, but the, 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 you know, capitalism is about creative destruction. Of course. Um, and you have to, um, unfortunately, you have to, you know, things have to fail in order for other new things to succeed. And that's just um, part of the dynamic of, of capitalism and part of the dynamic of technological disruption, which is why I think we live in one of the most exciting periods in the history of humanity. So the second thing that's really happened, and we were talking about that as a service concept, um, is that that as a service concept is now being deployed across all sorts of industries. So we've talked a little bit about all the digital stuff that's now as a service, the movies, the cloud-based services for companies, um, the music, um, sort of all of the informational stuff. We've talked a little about transportation as a service, but you know the latest unicorn. I think the most recent unicorn, at least out of New York, um, you know, company, private company with a valuation over a billion dollars, is Rent the Runway, and Rent the one Runway is the as a service economy for designer clothing. So it's this the reduction in frictional costs that is enabling the transportation revolution is also enabling all sorts of other new models. And the one thing that they have in common is that somebody, hold, somebody, the company or a distributed network holds the capital um, and the user doesn't. And as real estate people, we're pretty familiar with this concept. We just used to call it renting or leasing, right? So a multifamily building or people using housing as a service. An office building is people using space as a service, even though what we now talk about when we talk space as a service is usually things like we work and co-working and all of those things. But you know, the capital asset was still held by somebody else, and then it was made utilized efficiently by a stack of other people when and as they needed it. It's just that now it's happening even more efficiently. We've taken a step change in efficiency there. Yeah, I was wondering if we could maybe go deeper into the real estate uh, angle of, of you know, where, where all this is headed. So we don't need a lot of physical stuff to, uh, to be able to go to work and be prepared to work anymore. And we don't even necessarily need to be at the office to work anymore. Um, if, if both of those things kind of are emerging and, and are holding true, would, would commercial real estate buildings and I guess all the things that they house almost be rendered obsolete? Well, the most important thing that they house are people. So it used to be that your average utilization in an office building was 250, 260, 270 square feet per person. Now it's dropping to 130. Now part of that is because you've got, um, you know, sort of more efficient utilization of space and people moving in and out. But a lot of it is because a lot of the equipment that used to be required to do your work, your printers, your filing cabinets, your assistants, your 
all, all that's just a lot of that's just gone. I mean, you know, I remember at CBRE when we transferred our offices to what the CBRE program called the CBRE 360, which was sort of the new co-working style of office, just hauling out like dozens and dozens and dozens of file cabinets. So yes, you're right that the means of production, which is I'm going to call that not to sound all Marxist, <laughs> um, but the means of production is now sort of decoupled from a physical space for those of us who are working in the knowledge economy. That said, there's a lot of other things that go into work and do into productivity um, that are not directly tied to that, including the ability to interact face-to-face -to -face with people, to be in an environment where you can um, successfully execute whatever it is, that whatever type of task you're executing, whether that's a focused reading exercise or a focused writing exercise or a conversational dialogue or a casual sort of pull in information from a lot of places. Um, that's still very hard to replicate online. Um, and so I think that uh, what we're seeing is that space is actually becoming more important um, because now it's people go there for the space and the people, not for the stuff inside of it. So I think for um, people who are creating these new service-driven work experiences, uh, like you saw, we had a, an industrious on the panel. If you've gone to see their space in One Arts Plaza, it's fabulous, right? And it's you'll you'll. These are people working in the knowledge economy. These are digital people, but they're there because it's an experience that helps them be productive um, and enriches their lives, just both both in and out of work. How how have these changing times impacted? I mean, we talk a lot about the the workers themselves, but but how have these changing times impacted the people that own these commercial real estate buildings, the service providers and tenants that um, you know that occupy these buildings? What what strategies have they employed to adjust? Everything. <laughs> um, so it's tough um, because technology is moving at an exponential pace and real estate is a fundamentally linear asset. Right? In real estate, you're very happy when your um, NOI goes up by 5 or 6 or 7% a year. That's a win. Um, in technology, it doubles and then doubles again and doubles again. Um, so for real estate, it's, it's, we're, we are playing catch up um, to the new world around us. That said, um, there are some extraordinarily innovative um, uses that are beginning to take shape. And if you walk around Dallas, you'll see a lot of them. Um, I was just over at St. Paul's Place um, where they have, a, they've, they've, uh, Quadrant has recently redone it and put in a two-story um, co-working facility that not only do you think about a co-working facility, it's also an amenity for the building. So all the tenants in the building, uh, even if they're not in the co-working facility, have access to the common areas. And then there was and this was really cool, there was something called Her.HQ, which was a pop-up temporary co-working space inside of another pop-up co-working space um, that was focused on a specific demographic, in this case, professional women. Um, and so, so there's a lot of creativity that's happening out there. I think that um, while everybody is focused on what an exciting time it is to be in technology, it's a really exciting time to be in real estate, um, even though uh, we're being driven forward by effective obsolescence. So, uh, you know, people, it didn't change a lot for the last hundred years. We had cars and we had typewriters and we had phones. And all of a sudden, that whole paradigm is blown up and this whole world that we've built around it is, we're gonna have to adapt. Um, so it's really, it's for the first time, real estate has a driving mandate, a forcing function uh, to innovate. And guess what? Uh, everywhere I look around the country, New companies, legacy companies, owners, investors, occupiers, they're all rising to the challenge and creating really amazing new products. So let's, let's, talk, about, let's talk about data. Um, we had companies at Speaker Series the other day 
like Eden, which aspires to be a one-stop shop uh, for your office needs, whether they be, I need a handyman or I need snacks for the office. And, and we have companies like, like Wired Score, which tracks internet connectivity and, and other IT issues throughout the buildings. Um, do, these, do these issues uh, tend to be more successful in um, densely uh, populated areas, cities like New York that are, are, are already sort of walkable um, and, and they sort of have these transportation as a service kind of built in um, just to the, the construction of the city. Uh, can they work in more of a sprawling metroplex like DFW? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, data, um, the, the great thing about data um, is that uh, it's a universal data set. So um, in many ways, uh, as not only the Internet of Things continues to grow throughout our, our, our buildings, as more and more and more of the the um, asset gets equipped with sensors and reactive things, whether that's in the physical infrastructure of the building itself or in the build-out or in the Amazon Alexa that's sitting on somebody's desk and probably listening to us right now. Um, <laughs> the, uh, um, there's, there's all this whole information tied to the asset, and then there's a whole other bundle of information that's tied to the people because we're now all walking around um, with, with constantly transmitting supercomputers in our pockets. So there's this whole cloud of data that's being built up for it. Um, and I think that um, companies like Eden and like um, Equium, who is also on our panel, um, what they're really doing is they're being able, taking the, that building data and that people data and putting it together to be able to create um, a better lifestyle experience for, um, for, the company, for, for the people who actually live in those buildings. So it's one of the interesting things that I think has happened um, in the last few years is that we used to talk about tenants. You know, if you're in the office market, you talked about tenants. But now you really talk about occupants. Um, and you're no longer talking about the, the contracting entity. You're talking about the actual the people in the building. Because the contracting entity doesn't really have a way to force the people to come and use the building. They have to want to come and use it. It has to be a valuable place for them to go, at least for most of the forward-thinking companies right now. Um, and so uh, data is an incredibly powerful asset in that. Now, underneath that, in order to actually both um, capture it and utilize it in an effective and valuable manner, you need to have really good physical infrastructure. And this is where Wired Score comes in. Um, Wired Score is a fantastic company. Um, and what they're doing is basically taking the digital health of your building and scoring it. Um, and that means um, the total capacity into the building, the redundancy, its ability to be distributed wirely, wirelessly in and out of the building, your ability to access it effectively. Um, all of that is really important because if you don't have that fundamental infrastructure in place, it's really hard to do any of the wonderful magical things um, that technology can bring to us. Um, the other uh, big infrastructure piece, I, I call it the left and right fist of the future. Sure. Um, you have data on the left, and then you get the big right hook of electricity. Um, because increasingly, um, power is, uh, is a defining function in our lives. Um, it used to be you just needed power for your light bulbs, but now, um, I don't know about you, but when my phone gets below 10%, I start to freak out because I'm not sure how I would survive in the world for more than about five minutes <laughs> if, I, if I didn't have my phone. Um, so power is becoming an, an integral part of our, of our, our world, um, and access to, to power and to data are the things that are going to enable all of this, this stuff. Now, that, uh, when we talk about what's sort of coming, we're going to find out that um, most of the coming uh, changes in transportation and logistics systems are going to be driven by electronic, by elect, excuse me, electric vehicles, um, and that's just going to amplify. If you'll excuse my slight pun, um, amplify our need for power. 
What are the risks involved with all this data collection? I mean, wouldn't there at some point be some pushback from all of the collection, all the data collection that you know you hear about in the news cycle and you, you see play out in real time? You, you mentioned the Amazon Alexa. Um, we've had Facebook companies like Facebook selling our data without our knowledge. We've had uh, you know Target uh, credit card uh, data breaches as well. People are trusting Apple less and less. I mean, d- does this all this data collection end? I mean, where where's the line? So it's a very real concern. And I think that it's something, of all of the things that real estate as an industry is unprepared for, this may be the biggest one. Um, Because uh, I think of assets as the aggregators, the Googles, if you will, of the physical world. So um, Google um, began to build its giant data sets because you would go there first to access all sorts of other stuff. Well, that's a lot like going to work. You go to work, and then you access all of these services, digital and physical, whether that's the coffee, your lunch, whether that's what you're watching inside the building or what you're doing while at work. And so you've got, so all of a sudden, buildings become aggregators of, of, of information. And since they're often places that we go repeatedly, right? You go to your home a lot. You go to your office a lot. Um, it starts to build up a very, very, very detailed profile um, or there is the information to build up a very, very detailed profile of you uh, is available. So creating privacy around that um, and privacy protections and regulations and standards around that is really important. One of the companies um, that I work with is actually based out of the UK. They launch, it's a company called Guiana, G-Y-A-N-A, um, and they're launching here in the States in a couple of weeks. And they're a data product um, that's about mobility. It's sort of tangentially related to real estate, but I think it's a very fascinating data set. But what I'm, the reason I'm bringing them up is because um, in the EU, um, they recently passed the GDPR, um, the General Data Protection Regulation, um, which it creates a standard around privacy and how companies can anonymize and use data. Um, and so one of the, what's interesting is that uh, initially people said, oh, this is going to be a regulatory burden that's going to hamper innovation in the EU. Guiana is coming to the United States and selling their product partly on the fact, um, one of their value propositions is that it is, um, it is compliant with these privacy standards and they can say, hey, look, US users, we know that you don't have the regulations, but here's a product that has been stress tested by, by regulators um, to protect your privacy. So I think it's a really interesting area that um, we're gonna have some, pro- like we'll have problems. There will be, there are going to be instances where um, a real estate operator or owner is going to have a major security breach and pe- there's going to be information that's going to get out, just like has happened with Google and everybody else. Um, and um, just like anything else in the world, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really mature until a bunch of people have either gone to jail or gotten sued. Um, and then all of a sudden people start to take it seriously. And um, my prediction would be that that is going to happen at some point in the future. Um, and those who are thinking about it, being proactive about it, are less likely to be on the receiving end of that particular stick. So, Ellie, thanks so much for your time this morning and, and for, uh, for being our moderator the other day at Speaker Series. Um, where can people learn more about you and your work? So I invite you to follow me on Twitter at Ellie Feingold, E-L-I-E-F-I-N-E-G-O-L-D. Uh, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. And then if you'd like to read a longer version, uh, a much longer version peppered with Uh, a whole series of bad pop culture references and even worse Star Wars jokes, um, I'd invite you to go to propmodo.com and search for my long-form article, Our Frictionless Future, uh, where I go into much more detail about each of these trends 
um, how it's going to impact real estate, what you can be doing to prepare your assets and your customers uh, for that today, as well as a fairly extensive discussion of containerization, which will surprise you, but you find it very interesting, I hope. Big thanks to Ellie Feingold for joining us today. Be sure to subscribe to TrekCast wherever you get your podcasts and get your tickets to Market Matters over at recouncil.com. Once again, I'm Bill San Antonio. Thanks for listening.